Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 15. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 15. So if you open up your Bibles to that part, unfortunately I can't give you a page number. So commencing at verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mel. Well, good evening, guys. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ness Hughes, and I'm part of the ministry team here. It is great to be together tonight on this lovely, cool autumn evening uh, in this very new, normal way. As Mel said, we're starting a new um, Easter series today. And this time last year, I was preaching an Easter sermon and I told you about a very exciting school holiday excursion I took my kids on to visit my dad at work. He's a magistrate in a local court and we sat and watched an open session of court and it left a really big impact on all of us. Today I thought I'd tell you about another fun field trip I took my kids on to the local court. I am a very fun mum, I can assure you. I'm planning a very exciting school holiday excursion this um, school holidays to the veranda um, or perhaps to somewhere they ne they've never been before, like the laundry. <laughs> so this time I'd love to tell you about a particular excursion I took them to um, where my dad was many years ago doing a locum in Orange Local Court. That's where my sister lives. And dad gave us a tour of the courtroom while court was in recession. You can see this photo we put um, the kids in the defence stand. Here they are standing in the docks as if they were guilty on trial. Some of them were old enough to get into character, I think you can see. 
Now this photo is obviously just a little bit of fun, but as I was preparing for this sermon today, it came to mind. A picture of our innocent children standing in the docks. Our story today is a picture of Jesus, innocent, standing in the docks, so to speak. He stands accused before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. He's been brought to trial and execution by the chief priests. Jesus is innocent. How do we know this? Well, the wife of Pilate shares a dream, doesn't she? And in verse 19, we read her say, have nothing to do with this innocent man, she pleads Pilate. And then in verse 23, Pilate himself says, why? Why should I crucify him? What crime has he committed? Pilate isn't convinced that Jesus has done anything wrong, it sounds like. And the other gospel accounts of Jesus' trial paint the same picture of Jesus' innocence. In John's account of this same part of the trial in chapter 19, Pilate repeatedly says, I find no basis for a charge against him. In Luke's gospel, as Jesus dies on the cross, one of the criminals next to him says, we are, just, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Despite the outcome of this trial, which we all know ends up with Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was clearly understood by many as an innocent man. And here is the great Easter scandal. The innocent die while the guilty go free. So who then is guilty? Well, if you're familiar with this story, your quick answer will be Jesus Barabbas. Verse 16 says, At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Now Matthew doesn't really give us much detail about the charge, but Mark, Luke and John give us way more detail. Between these three gospel accounts, we see Barabbas described as an insurrectionist, a murderer, involved in an uprising. Barabbas was guilty. He was a freedom fighter. You could call him a zealot. Zealots were Jewish people who firmly believed that God would send them a Messiah and this Messiah would spearhead victory over the Romans and bring about the restoration of God's people. They believed this Messiah figure would be the triumphant son of David, a nationalistic military hero. Zealots were fueled by their zeal for Yahweh and they responded to oppression with direct action. They are a kill or be killed group of extremists and they're hoping for political independence. So Barabbas was one of these extremists, a devout Jew to be sure, but he'd expected God to defeat their enemies. Along the way, somehow, zealots had lost sight of a really key part of the identity of the people of God. They were set apart as God's special people, yes, but also they were called to be a people through whom the whole earth would be blessed. You can read about that in Genesis 12. Instead of anticipating a time where God would unite and rule all the nations peacefully together. The zealot mindset was committed to defending their own identity 
as the people of God. And so Barabbas is guilty. He's been part of a very specific incident, a murderous uprising, but he also represents this mindset, a mindset that was violently willing to protect and promote their self-interests. But I'm going to suggest tonight that Barabbas isn't the only guilty person in this story, and we're going to look now at Pontius Pilate. As you scan the passage, Pilate seems like an okay guy. He kind of seems like he's on our side, doesn't he? He's trying to get Jesus off. At worst, he looks like a weak, kind of easily swayed guy. But if you read what other historical authors wrote about Pontius Pilate, like Philo, for instance, he's a Jewish philosopher from the first century, you'll find descriptions that paint a picture of a much more heartless and cruel man. He's described as turbulent, dishonest, violent, deliberately provocative, and particularly insensitive to the Jewish people. He's recorded actually of being contemptuous of the Jewish religion, deliberately subverting them, and even at times executing untried prisoners. So why then does he seem so keen to get Jesus off? I mean, why not gleefully execute him like he's done before of less deserving people? Or equally, why not stick with his guns and taunt the Jewish rulers and refuse to execute Jesus as they wished all the way to the end? Well, Pilate's actions in this trial are the actions of a man being closely watched by the emperor of Rome. Emperor Tiberius had banned the harassment of Jews and reports of Pilate's cruelty had reached his ears before. Philo records a letter written by Tiberius in AD 31 warning governors about the unfair treatment of people in their charge. And so what we have here is a predicament for Pilate. If he's unnecessarily cruel, he'll be in big trouble. But at the same time, if he's unable to control the crowd and manage the uproar, he's in just as much trouble. And so by the time of the trial of Jesus, Pilate's actually quite vulnerable and his powerful position is in jeopardy. So his decisions, you could say, are made out of a concern for his self-interests. Initially, he tries to free Jesus so he can't be accused of unnecessarily crucifying a Jew. But he just as quickly succumbs to the growing demands of the crowd for his execution lest he be seen as incompetent. So just as Barabbas had been guilty of defending his own interests, Pilate, his motivations are just as self-focused. He goes a step further though, doesn't he? He even tries to wash his hands of any responsibility. I'll crucify him if you wish, but I take no responsibility. Verse 24, he says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. He might have declared himself innocent, but Pilate is a guilty man. Now, whereas Pilate is trying to avoid responsibility, the crowd gladly own up to it. Verse 25 says, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And so who are the crowd? 
because they sound like they could be among the guilty too. Well, the beginning of chapter 27 tells us that the chief priests and the elders bring Jesus before Pilate, and they're mentioned again in verse 20. So clearly, they're part of the crowd. But there are others there too. It's quite a gathering. Well, it's likely that the crowd uh, was made up of supporters of the chief priest, sort of like they'd stack the deck uh, so that Pilate could be easily swayed. But no doubt there would also have been supporters of Barabbas there petitioning Pilate for his release. Either way, this is not a neutral gathering. It's not a random cross-section of the populace. This is a crowd with an agenda. If we go as far back as chapter 26, you'll see that the Jewish ruling council and the chief priests had been looking for ways to kill Jesus. Initially, they decide uh, to charge him with blasphemy. But knowing this won't get very far in a Roman trial, they change the charge to treason. They're really unconcerned, aren't they, about why he dies. They're very determined, though, that he die. Now, all the power in Judea was concentrated in these guys' hands. The Jewish ruling council and the chief priests were among the very wealthy elite. Under the rule of the Greeks and then the Romans, they were very willing and most skilled at working out mutually beneficial relationships with their occupiers. Worked a bit like this. You give us powerful and, and uh, lucrative positions for us and our family and we will lead the Jewish people into compliance. Now, to be fair to them, they would have seen this as the best way to protect their religious heritage, that's true. But you can't avoid the reality that they were part of a corrupt hierarchy and they had the most to lose in a, in a Jesus-led movement. The crowd then, largely made up of the chief priests and the elders and their supporters, knows that they've arranged things perfectly. Pilate is vulnerable and they had the upper hand. Jesus, who challenged their whole system that maintained their very high positions, had to go. It was a matter of protecting their own interests. And it was so obvious that even Pilate could see their ploy. Verse 18 says, For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So here we have Barabbas, guilty of a murderous uprising, fueled by self-interest. Pilate, guilty of handing Jesus over to be crucified to promote his self-interests. And the crowd, a corrupt bunch, demanding for Jesus' death to protect their self-interests. They're all guilty. Well, for the last several months, we've been doing a series called Portrait of a Disciple. And we had this picture on the title slide each week. It's a picture of an artist carefully creating a portrait. And week in, week out, I imagine this picture as an illustration of how Jesus, through his spirit, carefully and gently over time, grows his disciples to look more and more like him. It looked to me like a picture of the, the disciples' life surrendered to the careful hand of the Creator so that he might craft, craft our lives to become a recognisable picture of God. We looked at different traits of a disciple and we were reminded over the last few months of some of those, like uh, disciples pray, 
disciples love how Jesus loves. They do not worry. Instead, disciples confidently hope in Jesus. And if all of that is a portrait of a disciple, then today in Barabbas, Pilate and the crowd, we see a portrait of sin. And I'm going to be really honest with you. During the Portrait of a Disciple series, some weeks more than others, I felt very much like a work in progress. And I guess that's the point. We, we all are, aren't we? But here's the kicker. I relate to the portrait of sin without any effort or strain. And it's true that I've never led a revolt. I've never been an unwieldy, power-hungry leader. You'll be happy to know, Mal. I've never let someone die to protect my own agenda. These were the specific expressions of self-interest in the people from our passage today. But it's not just those guys in those days, is it? I suggest that humanity is guilty of this too. And there are plenty of examples from around the world of selfishly motivated moments, past and present. We could draw upon those for illustrations today. But the world scene is confronting enough at the moment. So instead, I thought I'd tell you a seemingly trivial story from my own life when I was in high school. It's not my worst display of sin. And as minor as it seems now, I realise, though, it's rooted in that same dangerous, self-interested mindset. So when I was in Year 10 at Roseville College, I had a lovely group of friends. But as is typical of Year 10 girls sometimes, moments could get a little dramatic, you might say. On one particular day at school, we called a group chat at morning tea. The weekend that had just passed, we'd organised a compulsory girls' night out group bonding session. And you wouldn't believe it, but two girls did a no-show. They didn't come to this compulsory girls' bonding night out. They went out on their own with a couple of guys, no less. So you can imagine that we were outraged. And so on this particular school day at morning tea, the group chat had been organised to address such serious matters. I may or may not have chaired that meeting. There may or may not have been tears. But what was for certain as the morning tea bell rang? We were all due to head off to class. The matter had not yet been resolved. So we decided, may or may not have been me, to make the whole group skip double science so we could continue this most important intervention and reconcile our very deep group rifts. Needless to say, as we sat around in the playground for double science, we were notably missed from class and we all received a Saturday detention, all 20 of us. Well, again, I was most outraged and I was sure that when I went to the principal to explain the situation, she would revise our detentions perhaps even thank me for performing such essential counselling services. Maybe you won't be surprised to know that we were all indeed required to attend detention. And my parents joined the principal in reprimanding me for my self-important attitude. I look back on that story and I do see immature girls taking something oh so seriously at the time. 
but we were self-important, self-determined to put our interests first, self-appointed to play judge and executioner for these two poor girls, and self-affirmed in our right to do so. Is that not what we've just seen in the passage today as a portrait of sin? A zealot who was self-determined, who took matters into his own hands, a governor who sat on the judge's seat, self-appointed to handle the last moments of the life of Jesus, and a crowd that was self-affirmed in its agenda, inciting a mob to achieve its own ends. And if we look at this portrait of sin, we don't just see a bunch of people refusing to submit their lives to the Creator's brush. We see them yank it from his hands as they craft their own way. And this is why sin is so serious. It rejects God as God and assumes the role for ourselves. It rejects God, the source of life, and the consequence of this is death. But here is where the news gets really, really good. Here is the great Easter scandal. The guilty go free. And as we look now at Jesus' response, as he responds to this display of sin, we see something quite stunning. He doesn't expose them for the corrupt people that they were. He doesn't scream and shout about the injustice going on. He doesn't even overturn the way the story goes, though he had the power to do so. This is what Jesus had come for. John 3:17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So he faces the trial in silence, a silent obedience to the Father's will, a loving willingness to receive the punishment that others deserved. This had been God's plan for salvation from the beginning, just as it had been foreshadowed and foretold of in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In contrast to Barabbas and Pilate and the crowd who thought they were in charge, in control, who took matters into their own hands and looked to their own interests, Jesus does God does God's will and he does it perfectly. And so our passage in Matthew chapter 27 simply closes with verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Isn't it interesting that Barabbas is called Jesus Barabbas? Have you noticed that? So we have Jesus Barabbas and Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now the name Jesus was common at the time, reasonably common, and so in one respect it's not particularly notable. But I think the way that Matthew records it side by side twice, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus who is called the Messiah, I think it's actually worth noting. Barabbas means son of a father and Messiah means son of God. And so on the one hand, we have Jesus Barabbas, the son of a father, a meaning that really portrays a very simple sense of humanness. 
And on the other, we have Jesus, the heavenly son of his heavenly father. Jesus came not only to identify with sinners, but to bring them salvation by dying the death that they deserved. And Jesus, the Messiah, this heavenly son of the heavenly father, is led off to be crucified on the cross that was intended for another. And here we're given a beautiful picture of a beautiful exchange. Jesus dying in the place, not only of this man, but for all people. This is very good news. The guilty go free. And this is grace. How good is grace? There is a lot going on in the world at the moment. And for me, most of my days are buried in the new operations of my, my household. Printing worksheets, trying to connect to Google Classrooms, making meals every, I don't know, five or ten minutes, bouncing between Zoom meetings. Maybe your days look different to mine. Maybe uh, you need to shop at allocated times or uh, fill prescriptions. Maybe you study from home. But either way, there's lots to keep our minds attentive to immediate things, isn't there? We can barely keep track of what day of the week it is in our household. And do you know what happened to Neil this week? His work accidentally scheduled a meeting for this Friday, Good Friday. With all that's going on, do we even remember that Easter is next week? I know today's story is familiar. But as we revisit it today, it needs to grab our attention. God's kind and self-giving response to our selfish disposition. I pray that we are arrested again today by God's stunning grace. And as we ponder this thought this week, the guilty go free, that we might be prepared to hear the Easter story again. This scandalous, incredible moment of God's grace to us in history. How good is grace? Let me pray. Dear God, I thank you for reminding us of your inc incredible, generous grace. And at a time where we are bunkering down in our homes and tempted to keep our eyes on our own family, I do pray that you would encourage us to be loving and giving and generous toward others. Keep our eyes focused on others and you instead of on ourselves, we pray. Bless us in the lead up to Easter that we might hear afresh the amazing story of Easter and give great thanks for Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, thanks, Ness. It's wonderful to hear from God's word and maybe it'd be good for us to just pause at home for the moment and reflect on what's been said. As you are reflecting, just a reminder that our Q&A will come after some church news and the number uh, should be on the screen uh, and also on the weekly news. Well, let me bring you some of that church news. Uh, just a reminder that our weekly news has been emailed out to our regular members. Uh, for those who might be new, you can find the news on our website. 
uh, which is uh, accessible through standrews.net.au forward slash news. Uh, and if you read that, you'll see that our mission and aid partner for this week uh, is Malcolm and Leanne uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, it'd be good to read some information in our news about them and how you can be praying for them, especially during this challenging time. I don't think uh, that Southeast Asia uh, is being able to social distance in the way that uh, we are here in Australia. I don't uh, hear of the curve flattening. Uh, and so it would be extremely hard for Malcolm and Leanne, not only their own health, uh, but also as they, uh, they deal with people around them uh, who might be going through this and ministering to them. So if we could be praying for them, that would be really wonderful. Uh, just a reminder that those who support the ministry of the church, uh, you can give via EFT uh, and the details are on the back of the bulletin. Um, this, uh, we're also asking people to partake in a live stream survey. Uh, the address for that uh, was with our weekly news um, and it's also on the screen as well. Um, so it's really, we're really loving to hear from people what they think of this and some ideas and, uh, that we have and this survey will really help us. So if I can encourage you to fill it out after the service this evening, that would be really helpful. Uh, I'm planning on hosting an online catch-up uh, this Wednesday at 7.30pm. I know some people will be in their small groups and that's okay, but for those of you who might like to just catch up with me online uh, in an open forum, uh, you might have questions, you might have prayer points, you might have pastoral issues you want to talk about, uh, please feel free to jump on that Zoom. I'm asking for RSVPs and when I get an RSVP from you, I'll actually send out a link uh, so that you can join in that Zoom as well. Our Easter services, as Ness mentioned, are coming up this week, this Good Friday. We have a 9 a.m. Uh, service, uh, which will also be a communion service on Good Friday. I'm going to be encouraging people to think about getting some hot cross buns during the week and making sure you can enjoy them for morning tea after the service like we would do normally here at church, but you can uh, with your household. Uh, following that on Easter Sunday, uh, we have our 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. normal live streams as well. It's important as well that you know that our youth group during this time will continue to live stream throughout the holidays uh, on, uh, on Fridays and Sundays. They're not going to be doing it on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but, uh, but during the school holidays after that. And they're actually also releasing a podcast that's going to be happening on Tuesday evenings. Uh, and you can access that through Instagram or Spotify. Uh, so let me encourage you to find out more about uh, information from that on our website as well. I want to pray for all these things and then we'll head into our Q&A. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that is happening uh, through the ministry of St. Andrews. Uh, we pray that as it comes to Easter, uh, we can take this opportunity to invite our friends to hear more about uh, this, uh, the, the grace of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for those who support the ministry of the church and we pray that the money given today will go towards extending your kingdom not only here in Roseville but to the very ends of the earth. We pray this for your praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Ness back on and I'll jump onto the phone for some questions. Uh, here we go. So we'll start with, uh, with this one, Ness. Uh, why were there no supporters of Jesus in the crowd? Yeah, um, there may have been others in the crowd, but we have a fairly good account of many of Jesus' disciples, that, um, his supporters of the disciples, for instance, fled. Um, they weren't hanging around to, um, to advocate for Jesus, to call for his release, 
uh, they distanced themselves from him. So the disciples went around. There may have been um, some others nearby, but this, the uh, trial that we're looking at today would have been really early in the morning. It wasn't a scheduled trial, um, and so there wouldn't have been like the ability to really gain supporters and, and come around. There, there might have been a few there, but it wasn't the bulk of the crowd. Yeah, and we even saw from the, I mean, the account of Peter, and he gets nervous in a mm. small group, let alone disciples in a larger group. Yeah. Would have been a hard thing to yeah. do. Uh, okay, Ness, here's another question. Uh, how do we walk the line of feeling burdened by our sin mm. and needing to repent of it and knowing that we are free by grace and sinless through Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I didn't grow up as a Christian and before um, I became a Christian, I didn't feel burdened by sin at all, really. Um, and the more you find out about God and the more you love God in a relationship with him, I think the more serious sin feels. Um, as you grieve uh, your father in heaven um, and so that that does happen but as a Christian we do know too that um, once you accept Jesus and his place for you um, on the cross uh, you're saved once and for all and so there's a great lightening of that burden in that moment uh, the truth is actually that uh, the life of all people um, is not free from sin uh, my life isn't free from sin and it's true that that grieves me more than it ever used to, than it ever would have before. Um, but I've come to love confession. Again, before I was a Christian, I thought confession was just a really convenient loophole where people who were pretty horrible just came to church on a Sunday, felt great, and then left and continued to be horrible. But I think now um, that I see Christianity as a relationship with God, it's a time to come to my Father and to... Um, say sorry but within the bounds of a very loving relationship and knowing his incredible mercy so I think as a portrait of a disciple I'm an excellent confessor <laughs> uh, that's great this uh, next question has brought a smile to my face because I'm not <laughs> sure if we can answer it but I'm going to ask it anyway what did Barabbas do next Oh, that's a good question. I have it on very good authority that Stu Holman has a sermon in the archives, 2018, that supposes what Barabbas might have done next. And actually, uh, in that sermon, which Stu and I were chatting about it this week, he imagined um, perhaps as Barabbas as, and the crowd sort of watched Jesus be flogged in such a horrific way and saw him attached to the cross that had physically been made for him. He must have been the first person that totally understood Jesus' sacrifice for another. I mean, I think it, it, it would have, I may, uh, who knows, maybe he went off and just counted his lucky stars and had a feast, I don't know. But, yeah, it's good well, to imagine. The zealots were trying to, uh, trying to free Israel, weren't they? And he was literally freed by Jesus yeah. in that way. Yeah, nice. You hope it would have been a lesson for him. Yeah. 